Hey, good morning, church. My name is Brandon. I'm a member here at South Point, and I'm so grateful that you guys are here to worship God with us today. Um, if, you're, if this is your first time, we're really glad that you're here. Thanks for coming. Uh, for those of you that are joining us online, thank you for coming and joining us as well as we worship God and, and, and learn from his word um, about who Jesus is. So we're going to be in John 6 today and uh, going through that. A little about me, I don't have any kids, but I do have a niece and a nephew, and I love those two little guys. They're, they're fantastic. My niece is still an infant, so I'm scared of her. Um, holding her is like, I feel like I'm holding a bomb. Like, it, it's just, it's scary. But my, my nephew is a toddler, and he, he likes to run and be rough and jump around and play with toys, and he wants me to read him books and all that sort of stuff. So I, it's, it's the fun job. I love hanging out with the little man. And uh, when he gets fussy or starts to smell, I can hand him to his dad and wish him luck. And then he comes back clean and ready to play. It's, it's fantastic. I love it. It's, uh, being an uncle is a good job. And so uh, my wife's family is from Kansas. And so we had a little family reunion back there last month, and my sister and brother-in-law live in Iowa, so they came down with, down with my niece and nephew, and we got to introduce my little nephew to the tractors out on the farm. And it was fun. It was fun. So, some things to know about him is that off the bat, he already loved tractors. Like, it's a big deal for him. He loves talking about tractors. He likes watching videos of tractors. He's got little toy tractors that he plays with. If he drives past a tractor, he'll talk about it. If it's in a show, he'll get all excited. Uh, that and football. He really loves football, but he, he loves these tractors, and we got to bring him to the tractors out on the farm and let him experience it. Little thing about tractors, though, is especially real tractors, like, they're big. They're really big, and they can be intimidating. So this tractor, like, the seat is probably like 10 feet up in the air. Like, it's, it's really tall. You have to kind of like climb this ladder on the side of the tractor just to get up into it. And it's, uh, it's real loud, too. So <laughs> you have this huge, big object, really loud, and I could just see his face as it turned on. Like, it was, whatever was happening, a core memory was being formed. It was definitely like, you could see in his face, there was excitement, he was scared, he was terrified, he was curious, like it was a whole mixture of things, and he just grabbed onto his mom's leg, and he's staring at this thing, and you could see it processing on his mind, like he hadn't made up his mind if he was going to like cry in excitement or terror yet, <laughs> like it hadn't, it hadn't got there, but my brother-in-law knelt down right in front of him, looked at him, said, hey, it's okay, it's okay, gave him a hug, picked him up, and then whispered, like, do you want to go see the tractor? And it was fun because you got to see the fear just, like, leave, leave my nephew's face. And he's like, yeah! It was, it was fantastic. And so he got to spend the next hour with Grandpa and his dad up in the tractor driving around the fields. And it was, he was so happy about it. For the next several days, all he played with, like, he has a lot of toys. He only played with the tractor. And he would go around and he would talk about the tractor. It, it was a highlight for him. But there was that moment where it could have gone in two very different directions. Uh, he could have not trusted his dad and been just overcome with fear. And maybe, honestly, maybe never wanted to go near a tractor ever again. Like, just this is how trauma starts. Like, one little thing and just be scared and scared. But he has a really good dad. And his dad was there. He picked him up in his arms. He held him. And he was safe. And when you're safe like that, there's nothing to fear. 
in a lot of ways, that tends to be indicative of more of our relationship with God. What you believe about Jesus will determine what you do with Jesus. And oftentimes, just like a little kid, we can make some great decisions or we can make some really bad choices and decisions based on what we believe, what we feel, what we listen to, especially that feeling part. Man, following your heart is a dangerous thing. Too often, our heart is like a wellspring of evil more than it is anything else. Like, our feelings can just be deceptive and they can, they can overwhelm us with fear and all of that when we know we should do something else. So it was this cool experience, and in a lot of ways, I tend to be more like a kid than an adult sometimes. Maybe you can relate, even some of you older kids, you know, in their 50s and up. Like, you are more like a kid than maybe you want to project oftentimes, too, that for me, like, I know God is with me. I know it's going to be okay, but too often, I can't help but be frightened, to be scared. We want to help you see Jesus in 4K, to get a higher resolution of who Jesus is, a higher resolution image of who Jesus is. And if you've missed some of our previous messages, please check them out online. We have our messages on there. We also have a podcast that you can check out for the messages there. And a lot is happening um, in Jesus' ministry here. So we're in chapter 6, and last week we finished up chapter 5. Now, between chapter 5 and chapter 6, um, John skips a lot. So, like, he skips almost like a year's worth of ministry. There's, there's a lot between those chapters. And, I mean, some of the things that are between those chapters are some of Jesus' most famous miracles. The Sermon on the Mount. Um, John the Baptist was killed during that time. Several miracles, including Jesus brought a young girl back to life. Um, this is Jesus's, at the beginning of chapter 6, third Passover. So this marks the beginning of his last year of ministry. And so why doesn't John include all of these things between chapters 5 and 6? Well, John gives two reasons, and I'm going to give you a third reason. One of the reasons, my reason, is that, well, John is writing his gospel last. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are in wide circulation at this time, and they talk about all these things, so he doesn't feel the need to, to talk about them as well. But John gives two reasons to why he wrote what he wrote and he didn't write what he didn't write. In, verse, um, t- in John 20, 30 through 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And in John chapter 21, verse 25, he says, Now there were many more things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John's reasoning why he skips over these things and he doesn't include what he doesn't include is that he couldn't possibly have done so. He couldn't possibly have written down everything because Jesus did so much. He taught so much. He was so good that he couldn't possibly have written everything down because the world couldn't even contain that much literature. Um, In a weird way, just track with me, uh, this kind of reminds me of like, It's going to be weird for you guys, but uh, just like screen resolution, like the resolution that you have on your phone or TV or iPad or or whatever, um, we are 
have reached kind of the upper limit of screen resolutions um, with 4K. And now that doesn't mean that science can't create higher resolution screens. They can create 8K, they can create 16K. They'll probably be able to create more and more higher resolution screens, but 4K is pretty much the upper limit of screen resolution because if you have perfect eyesight, like that's better than you can see. So like if you have higher resolution screens, it doesn't transmit the image any better. You don't get a better picture of the story just because you have a higher resolution screen. Like 4K is kind of the max that we can do. Or if you have eyesight like me, like any TV looks the same. Like they're all, they're all good. You go to Best Buy, you buy the cheapest one because like, it looks the same as the most expensive one. I need glasses. But um, the image that we get here is enough. The resolution that we have is enough to, to convey the full um, image that is trying to be communicated. The Bible actually, um, okay, so um, here we go. So Jesus did more than what's recorded in the Bible. He actually did so much more but that we couldn't possibly record it all. And what John did write, here's, here's important, the stuff that is included was included with a purpose. And his purpose is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is giving us a, this 4K image so that we may know Jesus, so that we would be able to understand and believe who Jesus is. Aside from the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only event that's recorded in all four Gospels. This is no doubt indicative of how important this moment is and how well it shows us the image of who Jesus is. There are at least 5,000 men here. So that doesn't include the women, that doesn't include the children. So this is a large crowd. This could easily be 10, 15, 20,000 people. We're not sure. But this is a massive, massive crowd, especially during that time, especially in that area. This is big. And it's getting late, and it's the Passover, and people are getting hungry. And it's the, the Passover is a very important day. Um, you may not understand it, but it, just think like if you combine Thanksgiving with Christmas, that's probably about the equivalent of the importance of this day for the Jews. And this is a huge crowd. In this area, uh, Tiberius is likely the largest city. There's, they estimate that Tiberius had about 7,000 people in it. So this crowd's even larger than the largest city in the area. So he's gathered people from all over, and there's 5,000 men. 5,000 is an important number because it's the same number as a Roman legion. He has a literal army's worth of people here gathered, and that will come up later. Jesus feels a burden to feed these people. It is the Passover feast, and so remember the Passover celebrates the Passover in the Old Testament. Back in time, the Jews the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt. And Jesus sends a prophet, Moses, to free them from the slavery. And so he performs these plagues upon e Egypt, upon the Egyptians, to show God's wrath at the situation. There's 10 plagues, and the 10th and final plague was that all the firstborns in the land of Egypt would die that night. And the Israelites, to protect themselves from this plague, were to sacrifice a lamb 
to cook it, to eat its meat, to take its blood and to smear it on the doorposts of their house so that they would be Passovered. The imagery that's brought along with this is, is a, uh, a bird shielding its chicks with its wings during a storm. That while this storm of death happened around, that the people covered by the blood of the lamb would be safe and secure, and that this would lead to the liberation of the people. And the Jews follow Moses out of Egypt and are free. And so for the Jews with Jesus at this time, the Passover is a big deal because they are being occupied by Rome. So the desire for liberation is great with them. The meaning of Passover is great with them. So Jesus asks Philip, one of his disciples, to buy bread for all the people. Jesus didn't do this to tempt him, but to to test him, to, to question him to ask a question that allowed their faith to overcome their belief of what was possible. And so Jesus asked him to feed these people. And his disciples gave various options on how to make this happen. One of the first options, so because this is in all the four gospels, we can get bits and pieces and more information by going through them. And one of the first options that are put together, put forward is like, we we don't have to feed them. Like, they're adults. They came here. We didn't, we didn't ask them to come here. They came here of their own, own will. So just like, let them fend for themselves. I mean, that's a practical, maybe, maybe a less compassionate, but a practical option. But Jesus says no. And he asks Philip to buy bread. Uh, Philip answers with, you know, eight months' salary wouldn't even really be enough for all the people here to eat. And that sounds kind of like an answer I would probably give, trying to throw money at the solution. Um, God, I I know there's all these people. I couldn't possibly, like, that's just a lot of money. I don't think we can do it. And, And if you believe that, like, you can't even do it, then you just don't even try to. And um, I don't know about you, but that, that tends to be something for me is that I get hung up and just want to throw money at a situation to, to make it fix. And I don't tend to ask God for help. And I need to be asking God for my provisions more often. Andrew says that there's one boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. And we don't know how this boy, um, we don't know if this boy came earlier and brought this food to the disciples to give to them. We don't know if Andrew was going around and found this boy and then gave them the food, but the food's there. And it seems like Andrew has a bit of a posture of, God, I don't know how to do this, but this is what I have. And maybe that is a posture that I want to take more often, of to these big things that happen in my life. I, I don't know how to solve them. I don't, I don't know what to do in these moments, but maybe just bringing God what I have and praying that he'll make up for the gap. God, maybe you can do something with this. So the disciples offered their various options on how to solve this situation. And in many ways, I don't don't really blame the disciples that much. Um, To be honest, you really only know what you've seen before. That's why so many of us tend to become like our parents or become like our friends because we don't know how to handle situations when they come, so we just kind of do what we've seen people do, or we do the opposite of what they do. That's why either like you're like your mom or you're like the opposite of your mom. Like there, there's really no in between a lot of the times, um, because you really only know what you've seen. And for these disciples, they've seen Jesus do a lot of things, but they haven't seen him do this yet. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him cast out demons. 
that he's turned water into wine, he's brought people back to life. Maybe asking them to provide food for them, like it just hasn't crossed their mind. I mean, in, in the Old Testament, we learn about what God has done. We learn that when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, that God provided for them every day. That every day the Israelites would go out of the camp into the desert and they would just find food on the ground. They would find this, this like heavenly bread, this manna on the ground, and they would collect just enough for one day. Manna being, you know, manna meaning what, what is it? They didn't know what it was, but it was just, it, it was God's provision for them. And they would have just enough for that day, their daily bread. And so oftentimes, maybe we don't realize that the same things that God did in the past, he can do now. That he actually says that he can do even greater things than he did in the past. Maybe they didn't expect that God could still do those things. I don't know. But what I do know is that if you bring what you have to Jesus, he can do what needs to be done. Even with little, even with nothing, and you're just bringing yourself. Our big idea, Jesus is able to provide what you need. Now, I'm not saying that he can give you the stuff that you want. I'm not saying that he can give you the riches that you desire. I'm saying that he can provide what you need. See, Jesus prays and begins to pass out food. Not only did everyone get something to eat, they got all that they could eat and 12 baskets of leftovers. See, in the Old Testament, God gave them, the Israelites, what they needed for that day. But in Jesus, he gives them an abundance. He gives them an overflowing amount. And the 12 baskets of leftovers, I believe, are to represent the 12 tribes of Israel that Jesus is able to provide abundantly for all of God's people. More than enough. And then the people's response to Jesus' miracle. When the people saw this sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. I wish it stopped there, but unfortunately it doesn't. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I mean, think about it maybe from their perspective just a bit. There was probably no better time for Jesus to lead a revolution than right now. No better time for him to become a powerful person in Israel, to begin his political campaign or conquest of power, to overthrow the hypocrites, to to free and liberate Israel from Rome, who was controlling it. He has a literal legion of men before him ready to go to war. He can heal the sick, heal the wounded. He can lead. God is clearly with him. Could you ask for a better leader? I mean, there's a saying in warfare that an army marches on its stomach. And what that means is that if you can feed an army, if you can provide for their need, if you can handle the logistics, you can fight a war. And so that's kind of what they're expecting. There is a cycle in the history of Israel. It's a cycle of sin where they would sin. It would lead to oppression. It would, they would then repent and liberate, and then there would be liberation in Israel. So they would sin against God. God would remove his hand of blessing from them. 
Israel would be, then be oppressed by a ruler, either by a foreign king or one of their own kings turned tyrant. And then God would raise up a prophet, a ruler, a judge that would come and call them to repentance. The people would repent of their sins, turn away from the things that led them away from God, turn towards God, and God would raise them up and there would be a revolution. The people would be liberated and uh, they would clear the land of evil. And so, for many of the Jews, this is what they are expecting of Jesus, that he would come with a sword and raise an army. But Jesus did not come to do that. Jesus did not come to raise a sword and an army. He came to liberate Israel from the enemy. He came to liberate Israel with love. They believe that he is the Messiah coming to give them freedom, and they are right. However, they don't understand what that means. Their view is too limited, the resolution is too low, and they're missing the image of the Messiah and who Jesus really is. See, he is the coming king. However, he did not come to conquer through the sword, but to conquer through love. He did not come, I mean, he did come to shed blood, but not the blood of the Romans, his own blood for the Romans and the Jews. That he, in the word of John the Baptist, is the Lamb of God. He is the Passover Lamb that, when covered by his blood, brought life and protected from death. That he came to conquer death, to conquer sin, not just for the Jews, but also for the Romans. Jesus did not come to liberate the Jews from the Romans. He came to liberate the Jews and the Romans, to liberate anyone that follows him from sin and death. They were partially right, but their view of Jesus was just, it wasn't there. And we needed to bring his image into a higher resolution. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, he's being questioned by Pilate. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And ever since, Christians have been, this has been a tension. This has been a struggle. What does it mean to live in the world but not of the world? What does it mean to be a citizen of, of heaven but also a citizen of the country in which you live? I mean, even in the last four, couple years, this, I mean, there's been tension. It's, it's been a little weird. I've seen, on some occasions, what seems like more allegiance to a political party than to Christ. People fighting more to win their arguments than to submit to Jesus. Christians treating their neighbors and family more like enemies than realizing our true enemy. In 1 Corinthians 9, 22 through 23, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he says, to the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul knows that what the people really need is to be saved. Now does this mean that Christians should stay out of politics? No. I mean, I speak about political things, but I speak about them because they're biblical things. 
our morals, our values should be defined by God's word. And I should be far more excited when people turn towards God than when my political party gains more power. Republicans, Democrats, independents, libertarians, people that just don't care, they are all lost. They are all sinners in need of a savior. Their biggest need is not to see that their po- the flaws in their politics get pointed out and corrected. Their biggest need is that they need the presence of Jesus in their life. The Jews that Jesus was feeding wanted Jesus to rule this world, but not necessarily rule their hearts. And instead of Jesus going on the campaign trail and, and raising his political power and starting this revolution and war path to become king, Jesus instead withdraws from them. He gets away from them. He sends his 12 disciples across the lake to the other side. He then finds a quiet place to be alone and to seek God in prayer. See, Jesus went to this area in the first place, but before any of this happened, he came here to get alone and pray, but the crowds followed him. They brought him their sick and injured, and God had, Jesus had compassion on them and healed them. He taught them, he fed them, and he's showing the people who he is in teaching them about God. And in response to all of this, the people want to make him king, and Jesus comes into direct conflict with the will of the crowd. The crowd is trying to exert their will on Jesus to force him but Jesus is having none of this. He subverts the will of the crowd. He sends them away. He sends his disciples away. He goes out into isolation to be alone with God and seek God's will. It is possible for you to have a good opportunity come your way. For all the pieces that seem to be fitting into place, for for some great opportunity or, or just good opportunity, for people around you to be excited for it, to be saying, man, you'd have to be stupid not to go with that. Like, that is such a good opportunity. And for that opportunity to be contrary to the will of God. Because rarely are we tempted by things that are, like, terrible. We are tempted by things that are desirable. Oftentimes, the enemy of God's plan is something good. Have you been there? You thought that maybe this is the moment that God was going to finally give you what you wanted, that you had been desiring this thing or this promotion or this person for so long, and the opportunity is finally happening, and then you, you don't get it. God doesn't give it to you. Or even worse, you do get it. You seize it for yourself. And the whole time you know that God doesn't want you to do this thing, but you go and you do it anyways because you've always wanted this. this it feels that, that desire that you've had for so long. Well, I, I, this, uh, this day that the disciples are living through has been kind of a roller coaster for them. It's been an emotionally tense day probably, and it seems like the crowds are struggling. The disciples are struggling. Many of them leave. Many to never come back. And it's in these moments that you find out what you really believe. How committed are you to what you follow or what you want? Do you think, what do you think Jesus came to give you? What do you think that God owes you? Maybe we're looking for the wrong things. 
I mean, if you're anything like me, like, what, what, what do you do when you get prideful, when you get full of yourself, when your head gets too big to fit through doors? Like, what, what do you do in those moments? Do you go to God? <clears throat> when things are going right, do you, do, you, do you pull away to make sure that this is where God wants you to go and what God wants you to do? I'm reminded that Jesus was <clears throat> fully divine and Jesus was fully man. And I don't really understand how that works, but I believe it. And the Bible talks about him being tempted in all ways, but he overcame all of the temptation. <clears throat> Sorry about that. <clears throat> and it gives me comfort to know that we could follow him in how to avoid that. So Jesus withdrew to be alone with his father. The humility and the restraint that he demonstrated, I think, is immaculate in the we, we need to maybe follow in that. Because he was about to disappoint the thousands of adoring fans, and they were about to leave him. This feeding of the 5,000, in many ways, was the height of Jesus' ministry. Never again will it be recorded that he gathered a crowd this big. And many of these people will leave and never come back. So when Jesus has the biggest crowd he'll ever have, when he has the most followers he'll, he, during his earthly ministry would have, he responds by sending them away and focusing on, on God's will. It reminds me of the night before the crucifixion, where he goes to be alone with God to talk with him about this. See, he had this regular practice of going to being alone with the Father so that he could, he could always follow his Father's will and not the will of other people. If Jesus took time to be alone with the Father, then I know I need to. <laughs> I, I know I need probably more, way more time than Jesus took. And so I try to spend time with, God, with my Father every day, to be alone with God because I need it. I wish I did better than I do. We probably all wish that we did better than we do. It, it's a struggle. And usually the things that we struggle with the most are the things that we need the most. But I do it because I need to remi be reminded of who God is, of who I am, and who I am not. I need to be reminded that this life is not about me, that what I want isn't always what God wants, and what God wants is better. I need to go and check my ego and my pride and walk out this day and, and, and worship with God. The more time I spend with him, the more I realize who he is and what he can do. Instead of thinking that the only way forward is by my own efforts, my own abilities, I am, I am always reminded that he is able. It is by his power that things happen. And when I'm alone with God, when I'm with him, I can bring him all of myself and he can make it work. No matter what situation I'm in, even if I have little, even if I have nothing, I can bring myself to him and he'll lead me forward. I need to take my time, talent, treasures, wants, desires, and lay them at his feet. And I also need to question myself, am I trying to force my will on God, or do I want God in my life? Jesus in here, he doesn't get caught up in the drama. He knows better, and he knows what his disciples really need is him. He has sent his disciples ahead of him across the lake 
<clears throat> in the boat, and a storm comes a-brewing. In Matthew and Mark, it, he, they talk about the disciples being afraid and fearful. And rightfully so, like they are experienced fishermen, so they know the storms on this lake, they're common and they're dangerous. It's a freshwater lake about the size of Lake St. Clair, and getting stuck out there for hours, ugh, they're in danger, their life's at risk. But when they needed him the most, Jesus came walking to them. They see Jesus out there and they're scared at first, they think he's a ghost, but Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus showed up when they needed him most. And in Matthew's account, um, they talk and they add a little bit more to it. Um, so Jesus gets in the boat, he calms the storm. But before he does that, Peter calls out to him and asks to, to, to go out onto the water too. And Peter takes a step out of the boat and starts to walk on water. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying of him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? For a brief moment, Peter's faith was overcome by his physical senses, and we can see, I don't know, maybe we could tease Peter about this, maybe we can applaud Peter for his faith to even step out in the first place. I'm not exactly sure how to take this, but what this does demonstrate is how capable Jesus is. I mean, what a crazy day for these people. It's the heights, the lows, the height of his popularity. They had gathered a literal army's worth of followers. And then the crowds were sent away. And the disciples almost just died in a storm. But earlier they saw Jesus feed thousands from one boy's lunch. They saw Jesus and Peter walk on water. Jesus calmed the storm. It must have been an emotional roller coaster for the disciples. But what it did also portray is the reality of Jesus' capability. Jesus is able. And in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, and he says about Jesus, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. He is able. El Shaddai, he is sufficient. And God will do what he purposes to do, and no power will overcome him or oppose him. He can take my little, he can take who I am, and do great things with it, as long as you bring yourself to him. God can do a work in you. God can make you into the man or woman that he created you to be. God can break your addictions. He can replace it with life. He can heal your marriage. He can heal you. I know that you struggle. I, I struggle. We all struggle. But he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Are you trying to exert your will on God, or are you seeking his presence in your life? I guarantee you this, if you spend time with God and you seek his will, you will become changed. Our big idea, Jesus is able to provide what you need. 
too often, God brings me to a situation similar to bringing a kid that loves tractors to a tractor. And the situation, I get caught up in the, the bigness of it, the, the loudness of it, the, the chaos of it, and my lack of understanding, and I get overcome with fear. But if I have a good God, if I have a good Father that loves me, that will keep me safe, and that will pick me up in his arms and tell me it's okay, then maybe I can go on a great adventure with him. And instead of turning away from God and not trusting him, I can embrace his presence in my life and have a wonderful adventure in this ride on the tractor. In our best moments and worst moments, Jesus is there to guide us through, to provide what we need. The disciples were obedient. They got in the boat. They, they did what Jesus said because they knew him. They might not have understood what was happening, but they, they, they knew him and they trusted him, so they did what he said. And it's not that Jesus was keeping them from something. He was, he was keeping them for better things. He had better things planned for them, great things, things that would give them life. And so what you believe about Jesus will dictate what you do with Jesus. I want you to trust him. I want you to put your faith and your hope in God that he will be there, that he will take care of you, that he will save you. And if you want to make that decision today, I would love for you to make that. If you want to talk with someone about making that decision, if you have questions or if you're ready, you could text your name to 734-304-7248 or send an email to next at southpointcc.com. We'll also have decision coaches up here in the front in just a moment that would love to have a conversation with you and pray with you on whatever your next step may be. They'll be here for you. I mean, you can be baptized today if you'd like to commit your life to follow Jesus. And for those of you that have already made you that decision to follow Jesus, I encourage you to take a step of faith today and to join us in communion. Communion is a form of worship that we do every week here. We take some bread and some juice to represent Jesus' body that was broken and beaten for us, that he is our sacrificial lamb, that we could experience the life that comes through him, that we wouldn't experience the death that were the wages of our sin, but we could have eternal life with our God that loves us. The bread to represent his body that was broken and beaten in our place, and the juice to represent his blood that was spilled that we're covered with so we could be made pure and holy before our God. Would you please play, pray with me? Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Jesus, thank you so much. While we were still actively sinning against you, while we were still actively your enemies, you died for us. You came not to liberate one of us from the other, but you came to liberate all of us from death and sin so that we could experience eternal life with you. Jesus, you are able, you are able to save us, you are able to provide for our needs. And God, I please help me to come to you more when I'm in need. Like a little kid running to their father. Lord, I need you. We all need you. So please move and power. 
Jesus name I pray. Amen. Would you please take communion?